From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I say baseline moral seriousness in print and online because it refers to a thing that I see people moving away from when they aren't, when they're so in love with their rhetoric or when they're so horrified by incoming data that they're going to say things to avoid the incoming data and what it says about themselves. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm delighted today to welcome back to the show David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. David Dark is the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons, and Other Pop Culture Icons, and the book The Possibility of America, which we have talked about on this program. His writing has appeared in Pitchfork, Paste, America Magazine, the Christian Century, and Religion News Service. He teaches in incarcerated communities and at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Today we're talking about his most recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. Professor David Dark, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I am honored and grateful to be with you. Well, the way that I had thought about this conversation today is I'd like to ask you about three figures that have been important in your thinking. And so in this first segment, I would like to ask you about a moment when you were watching the David Letterman show and you saw that Rush Limbaugh was going to be a guest the following evening and you tuned in that following evening and you report that you were very excited. I wonder if you could tell us about the nature of that excitement. Let's start there. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic question. So I was excited. Because Rush Limbaugh, who at that point in time was not the de facto leader of the Republican Party, was a kind of rogue element in popular discourse. To my mind, a little like Andy Kaufman or Laurie Anderson or someone who, well, I'm not going to call him a multimedia artist because I don't think of him as an artist, but someone who broke the compartments down. And who, for me, and let me see if I can get the years right, I want to say maybe from 89 to 91 or 92, when I was an undergraduate student at Middle Tennessee State University, I was energized, so energized by my philosophy classes that I became a philosophy major, a double major in English and philosophy. But as someone who believed in God and as someone who mostly supported Republican candidates for that season, I want to say, because I want to throw in that my mom and my dad were lifelong Democrats, evangelical Democrats, I want to say. But I was of that age 
where a kind of white male grievance was settling in my heart and mind. And hearing Rush Limbaugh, rhetorically speaking, put people in their place on the radio was intoxicating to me. It was like an espresso shot of self-confidence. And so I had been friends, had recommended him to me. I listened to him. I loved what he had to say. I would repeat a lot of what he had to say. And at that tender age, would imagine that what I was saying wasn't Rush Limbaugh, but was me. There's that moment. It's normal to imitate people that we admire. Imitation might be at the heart of education in some sense. But in any case, when Letterman announced Limbaugh as a guest, and Letterman was another person that I very much admired, I thought, here we go. This is really exciting. Someone who sees the world the way I do is about to be lifted into network television. And Letterman, as I recall in the book, looked a little surprised by the audience reaction. There seemed to be cheers. There seemed to be boos. And that only further increased my admiration for Limbaugh because I will confess to you that I perhaps even imagined that he was somebody who was being persecuted for righteousness' sake even then. And from there, Limbaugh had me for a while. Or, I want to say, the spirit that had hold of the human being called Rush Limbaugh had hold of me. I don't mean to be cryptic or weird on that, but I try to make the distinction between persons and their positions. And I don't want to blame the man himself, may he rest in peace, for what I made of his broadcasts. We've talked before about the idea of persona, and you've, you've already begun to gesture in that direction. And you and I have talked before about David Bowie. And one of the things that I recall very much from David Bowie was a conversation he had with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, where he was talking about he was never the kind of person who could get up on stage and just wear working man's clothes. And he, he felt like he, he belonged more in the costumes. And Terry Gross said, you didn't think that you could just be a regular person on stage. And Bowie quickly corrected her and said, I didn't say that the working man's clothes were more authentic. They would also be an act. They were just not an act that I could pull off. So if, if, am I hearing you correctly when you talk about the spirit inhabiting Rush Limbaugh, that Rush Limbaugh was a performer. To some extent, we could call him an entertainer. He was inhabiting something as a persona, and you were captivated by that. Now, when I say it that way to you, does that feel right, or would you say it in a different way? It really does feel right. We have the word performative now, and we've always had the word joke, entertainment. <laughs> that's politics, that's entertainment, that's sports, but we've had persona longer. Persona is Greek for mask. We play different roles. Walt Whitman says, I contain multitudes, and Bob Dylan recently parroted that light as well, and he's a good one too, because the roles we play, that with the functions we perform in various settings are different from the core of who we are, and one of the cautionary tales for me, and it was actually probably only a little ways after the election of Donald Trump that I started recalling in my mind how I felt about Rush Limbaugh, what we might call the Trump era or the Trump years, which are not necessarily concluded, led me to a lot of soul searching on how it is that I got to where I am and a lot of soul searching on how if I had been well compensated 
to be a particular version of myself in my early 20s, my life would look very different than it does right now. If the internet had existed in the years, and I know it existed on some sense, but if it existed the way it does now between 87 and 92, there were things that I said that made it into school papers that if I'd had the opportunity to post those things on the internet would really call into question now whether or not I should be entrusted to a classroom full of students. I, I don't say that to sabotage myself, except to note, this is part of my compassion practice. If I think of someone like Rush Limbaugh or any number of figures, uh, politicians, entertainers within what we call cancel culture, as beyond me, beyond the pale, I think that's the beginning of my error. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with David Dark. He is an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He's the author of numerous books, and his work has been featured in numerous publications. Today we're talking about his recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. As I'm hearing you saying this, uh, I'm recalling uh, a comment made by the recording engineer Steve Albini, and you've not heard of Albini, most listeners haven't, but you've heard of the people that he's worked with, Nirvana and other groups like that, but the Pixies, all that. But he said at one point that being exposed to the Ramones gave him a, a sort of point of departure where he didn't become like enamored of jock culture. He didn't become enamored of kind of white male power culture, but instead he became enamored of misfit culture. And he said, if I had been exposed to something other than, than the Ramones, it could have gone much differently for me. What's curious to me is you were exposed to a sort of uh, a hyper-volatile, masculinizing right-wing character in Rush Limbaugh and he galvanized you for a little while, and then you turned away from that. What changed for you? What Was there a particular moment, or was it a gradual fade where you began to realize that the path that you were being led down with Limbaugh was not the correct path? Oh, that's beautifully put, the, uh, the gradual fade. I think part of it, and I like to say even to the 18-year-olds that I work with now in the classroom, that it's all a mixed bag. I ask them to tell me what their favorite movies are. I will name artists to see if they're into them. We'll talk about Taylor Swift and Kendrick Lamar. And I invite them to do a deep dive into why particular figures, Jordan Peterson even, mean so much to them and why. To ask the question of why. And I had Public Enemy and U2 and R.E.M. and Suzanne Vega well in my head by the time Rush Limbaugh came along. And I think that was a help when I realized that those folks weren't into Limbaugh. And when I realized that mentioning Limbaugh within particular circles would inspire particular looks from people. Yeah, a little bit of disappointment. No one derided me, but people would express their confusion and put questions to me that are a little bit like the questions I try to but to people now, clearly, that artist, that pundit, that YouTube personality scratches an itch for you. Why is that? And if you love the person, let's research the person a little bit. And of course, research, I, I try really hard to 
not let that word research be a kind of shamey, burdensome thing, but rather just let's scratch the surface. I used to read the liner notes, still do, of the albums. I want to know the people behind the people that I'm into. And I think I was encouraged in that what Octavia Butler calls positive obsession. And there were people who, when I said a militantly ignorant thing in front of them, did not shut me down, but gave me the sacred benefit of doubt and um, tried to maximize the parts of me that were more easily affirmed. So I think I was encouraged to really mix it up. We had mixed cassettes back then. I would go see movies with people, go to Blockbuster with people, and I would recommend movies to strangers at Blockbuster Video, and they would to me. So I think that there were spaces where the track that we were on wasn't quite so catastrophic as it can be now when people fall into a kind of pseudo-intimacy relationship with people who don't want to have anything to do with them in person, but who, like Limbaugh for me, met a perceived need for a time. Yeah, and I, and I was never going to, I was never going to fall for the idea that all I needed in my head was Rush Limbaugh. Well, and listeners may have wondered at why we suddenly dove into this particular subject when we're supposed to be talking about your book, We Become What We Normalize. But I think one of the reasons why I wanted to start out talking about Rush Limbaugh and the effect that Limbaugh had on you and the break that you had with Limbaugh is because for a season, Limbaugh was someone that you normalized, someone that, right. you, that you brought in and said, this is part of my intellectual history, just like you two, just like Suzanne Vega, just like R.E.M. This is part of my heritage. And, and then you found the means to say this can no longer be part of my heritage or, or, or this is complexified in my heritage. So this is what you are doing co- repeatedly in your book, We Become What We Normalize. But as we're moving to our first break, I just want to ask you to reflect on that. Like, how would you say that, that Limbaugh was abnormalized for you over time? Yes. Well, I realized that the people who really loved Rush Limbaugh, like me, were white men. And I have a lot of friends who are white men. but when we notice, when we learn to read the room, and when we learn to imagine that somebody being opposed to someone else's position isn't them hating them, it's just them opposing their position. And I have bookshelves even now, and I love when people look at my bookshelves because they say something about me. Came a time when I didn't want Limbaugh on my bookshelf anymore. I wasn't going to deny that he got hold of me at a point in time, but he just isn't enough people. Nobody is. And there's no, I don't think I have any contempt for him now, but I do feel sadness for the people who I confess. I urged to listen to Rush Limbaugh and they never stopped. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He's the author of numerous books and numerous articles in various publications. Today we're talking about his recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He's the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, and The Possibility of America, which we've talked about before on this show. Today we're talking about his most recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. So in our first segment, we started out talking about your season with Rush Limbaugh and the effect both of embracing and coming to let go of Rush Limbaugh, how that affected your thinking about your moral life and what we might call moral seriousness. I'd like now to ask you about a second figure that you discuss in your book, We Become What We Normalize, Larisha Hawkins. How did you first come to know about Larisha Hawkins, and why is she significant? Why should my listeners care about Larisha Hawkins? Yeah, so you can correct me if I have the date wrong, but I want to say it was 20. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me. I know it was before the election of Donald Trump. Might have been 2014, December of 2014. That sounds about right to me. Yeah, so I followed the news of, as it came to me, the Wheaton faculty member, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, who was placed on administrative leave over a Facebook post. And then I started digging around, and I saw that the long, the short bit was that she donned the hijab in solidarity with Muslim sisters and brothers across the country. And she did this as a Christian. She was not herself Muslim. So she was saying, I'm going to wear this hijab because Muslims are being persecuted, and this is the Christian thing to do. That's right. As the holidays were rolling around, she is the first tenured black female faculty member at Wheaton, political science. And I later find out that it was in that it started up in the classroom when she and her students were processing the fact that Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, had made a joke about shooting Muslims if they came on campus. Listeners can look this up, but it was something like, if they, and it was in response to a, uh, a shooting in California that occurred in San Bernardino, and specifically taking a shot at um, President Obama, who was talking about tighter gun laws, and saying if they you know, we'll end them if they come on this campus. And he said into the microphone in a stadium full of students, is it okay if I pull it out? Referring with a little, some very unpleasant innuendo, his own sidearm, which we, he was letting everyone know he had on his person right then and there. 
As I understand it, Dr. Hawkins discussed this with students, and the students had the idea of donning the head covering. And she did herself, did a Facebook post in which the language of God, drawing on Miroslav Volf, Pope Francis, and others, Jews, Christians, Muslims, worship the same God. And I was excited by this. Let me explain, because I thought this is going to be a big moment for Wheaton, an institution that I have a lot of affection for, to pass what I think of as the Bonhoeffer test, where followers of Jesus choose to, and I'm drawing on Dr. Hawkins' language here, engage in acts of embodied solidarity with targeted people. And I knew, because of Twitter, that Franklin Graham had gone after Wheaton for presumably backing her on this. And to this day, I, I want to commend to listeners the same God film, which tells the whole story. But as, and one can see through the film, that it wasn't exactly the hijab, because she did prepare a statement when asked, explaining her theological justification for that move. But then she was asked to meet privately with the provost again to circle back on it. And as um, a black woman in the black prophetic tradition of Oklahoma City, she did not want to do that. And that was the beginning of Wheaton putting her in exile. And even telling the story now, I want to go back to the hope that I felt. I thought this is when not just Wheaton, but others will step forward to back her when people like Franklin Graham and others seem to want her gone. But they betrayed her, and that betrayal still reverberates. And she is, she's become a friend since I've invited her to my institution twice now. And I think she's one of those people who will be remembered and celebrated, I hope, now, within the years to come, as someone who stood up to Christian supremacy and someone who stood up to Islamophobia. She, in her addresses to students on our campus, she's said, I want you to study, but I mostly want you to be prophets. And I'm very energized by this because I believe that the prophetic task, which is dramatizing the moral evils that are otherwise normalized in our presence, that is the prophetic task. She took it up. She paid the price. She's still paying the price. And while there was, if I could tie two things together, there was a time when if you liked Rush Limbaugh, you were a friend of mine. Like I thought, oh, I bet we have something in common. These days, if you like Larisha Hawkins, or if you're even willing to acknowledge your existence publicly, you are in that number of people who are taking up the prophetic task. And one notices, living in Nashville, the people who have been consigned to a kind of social death. And I would say that Dr. Hawkins is one of those, because everyone I talk to personally will say, Wheaton did it wrong. That was wrong. And they will know that she showed prophetic courage, civic courage. But the number of people that I've grown up with in Nashville all these years at 53 who praise her 
in public settings. It's a little bit small when it comes to the high rollers in what I call the prayer trade. So I celebrate her. I'm honored to call her a friend, and I am going to be um, sharing her story as often as possible with anyone who wants to listen. And I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to celebrate her in this book. Absolutely. And you used a phrase that I know has been amplified by Larisha Hawkins. I don't know if she originated it, this notion of embodied solidarity. I wonder if you could describe for us, give some backfill to what that particular phrase means and means for you. Yeah. So I I don't know that I'm quoting her directly when she says, I believe I am practically quoting her when she says, theoretical solidarity is no solidarity at all. So one can do thoughts and prayers, one can condemn the attacks, one can uh, say all kinds of things, but embodied solidarity is recognizing that we all have skin in the game and to stand in the way, to stand alongside those who are being attacked, targeted, and often physically intimidated. Yeah, she is the model for that. For me, and in the same way that I think of Charles Marsh's phrase, lived theology, it's similar. But theology, similarly, needs to have legs. It's about bodies. We, we use words. We discourse. But embodied solidarity, to me, is a uh, critique, an implicit critique of detachment, of armchair commentary, and yeah, she is the one. There are, there are many others. There are artisans of moral seriousness all around us, but she's one of the go-tos because she truly paid the price. She could have stayed silent. She could have kept her head down. She could have complied, but she hasn't. And she really does strike me as someone who exemplifies the glorious freedom of the children of God. She is not hiding her light under a lampshade. And she is paying the price for her commitment to beloved community. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He's a frequent speaker and podcast guest and is the author of numerous books and articles. Today we're talking about his most recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. I want to stay with Larisha Hawkins for a little while longer. You used another phrase just a moment ago, moral seriousness. And when I've talked to you about this before, and and you, you have a section in your book, We Become What We Normalize, where you begin to excavate this idea of moral seriousness. One of the ways that you've described it to me in conversations past was a quotation from Hannah Arendt. It's, It's where we begin to take responsibility and love the world and help to make it better. And yeah, what education, I, she tells us. Yeah. And this is, I think this is almost an exact quote. It, education happens when we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. Exactly. And so here we have Larisha Hawkins, an educator who was not simply speaking theoretically about a problem that she saw, but she loved her students enough to listen to them when they said, we think this is the proper action. And then she took responsibility and embodied that action, even to the point where it cost her dearly. Now, as I'm making these connections, does this seem right to you, that this is a very clear example of the kind of moral seriousness you're talking about in your book? And if I am correct, I'd love for you to reflect on it more with me. Yes. So first off, I'll, I say baseline moral seriousness. 
in print and online because it refers to a thing that I see people moving away from when they aren't, when they're so in love with their rhetoric or when they're so horrified by incoming data that they're going to say things to avoid the incoming data and what it says about themselves. So quickly, I'll say that I define ideology as what we um, have to believe in order to feel good about what we've already decided to do. So ideology is this, it does fit with the performative thing, with the live action role play, LARPing, which is happening a lot within our society when we weigh in on matters. I guess I'm going, with your permission, to expand baseline moral seriousness, I'm going to refer to the recent news cycle. So if I'm a reporter and I'm pointing out to an Israeli elected official on the ground that for all the talk of the military action to be taken on the Gaza Strip, when you cut off power, that means that you're cutting off power to incubators in which there are babies. So I'm thinking of footage I saw recently where the reporter said, sir, um, what do you say to those who are disturbed by cutting off power in such a way that babies and incubators will die? To which the um, ex-official on the ground said, how dare you? It's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> I, I understand why you're saying how dare you because you're about to tergiversate. You're about to give me a word salad in which the rollout of which is that these babies are the enemy. To which I want to say, and here's baseline moral seriousness. Baseline moral seriousness requires that if anyone who has sought or received public trust describes a baby, a Jewish baby or a Palestinian baby as an enemy, that person needs to resign their position. No baby is my enemy. That is a baseline moral seriousness statement. And people in their positions, whether you're a White House press secretary or whatever, whatever you are, we're responsible for our words. And baseline moral seriousness means that we will circle back and say, I misspoke. Or in the case of Tennessee, that we will back down when we have pushed disinformation, as my governor and both of my senators regularly do. So it is in the cauldron of Tennessee, the beautiful state of Tennessee that I love within the last six years, that I've started dropping the phrase baseline moral seriousness to describe what I'm trying to stay at and what I'm trying to draw people to. We live in a culture in which it's very easy to say that somebody was being inappropriate or somebody was out of line. So baseline moral seriousness gives me this ground to, I, I sure wouldn't claim to be the final arbiter on what moral seriousness is, but I keep throwing those words back in there so that we can get back to the part where nobody was villainizing anyone, nobody was demonizing someone, 
And so I've just pulled from the news of the last few days. I think of that kind of thing when we're trying to deal with what Teju Cole has called the theater of surprise. We can scroll in such a way that we look at news and we are titillated and shocked. But when we look up from our phone, sometimes even after half an hour, we couldn't easily tell you what we just saw because we were rolling in it in a way. Moral seriousness is a way to hit pause, slow the tape, and say there is a um, common ground that we can find so long as we're willing to return to the text of what someone actually said and let people define their positions rather than saying, oh, well, if you say that, then you must be kind of thing. And if I'm hearing you correctly, so when we see that there is a threat to a baby in an occupied zone, if we hear the narrative, this baby is my enemy, a baseline moral seriousness might say, I will take responsibility for that baby despite the narrative, and I will work for the flourishing of this human versus the flourishing of the narrative. When I say it this way, do I have it oh, basically right? Yeah, so I would say I am going to, if someone tells me that the baby dying in the incubator is necessary because the enemy, I am going to shake my head. I'm going to stand up. I may not get any words, but I'm going to shake my head as they are speaking to say, I don't stand with you in that position. And a question that I return to throughout the book is this, and it speaks to the scenario we're describing. Am I responsible for the lies I let others voice in my presence unchallenged? And I can't answer that. There's a power differential. If I'm working at Burger King and someone says a bigoted thing in the eating area, is it on me to shout at them? (laughs) I'm not going to say, yes, it is. But I am going to return to the question, a question that I mean to live with. Am I responsible for the lies I let others voice in my presence unchallenged? And I think I am if I'm the adult in the room. I think I am if I'm the only person who is going to dare to say, now, hold on. I don't agree with your reasoning there. You have, with a very broad brush, described a baby as a security threat. And we can work out the details, but no, heavens, no. I am going to say heavens or hell, no, to the thing you just said. And then I will let the chips fall. If you're going to accuse me of something for not playing along to get along, I'll deal with that. And if I can take it back to Dr. Hawkins, I'm ready to join her in being vilified or infuriating someone for the right reason. The older I get, I am okay with infuriating people for the right reason. But it's also the case that I can only answer for my stated public positions. I can't answer for what someone projects on me or for what somebody accuses me of. So in our day of everything all of the time, disinformation, as a business model, it is a tricky time because often we are being asked to defend ourselves over positions that we haven't taken. 
which makes it all the more important to have this space where we can take it slow and ask this question of what's been normalized and why, who we credit and why, and back to baseline moral seriousness. If I can get people to nod when I say the words moral seriousness, we have a a thing that we can talk about. But if the suggestion is that if I question so-and-so or put a question to so-and-so, I'm being disrespectful, that's a a very unpleasant, that's a climate of fear right there, which I'm going to try to overcome with the love of God and love of conscience and love of beauty at every turn. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, the author of numerous books, including The Possibility of America, which we've discussed on our broadcast before. Today we're talking about his most recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He's the author of numerous books, including The Possibility of America, which we have discussed on our broadcast before. Today we're talking about his recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. Well, so far in our conversation, we've talked about two figures, Rush Limbaugh and Larisha Hawkins. The third figure is one that is more abstract, more intellectual, but you describe being a teenager walking into a mall bookstore. I don't know whether it was a Walden Books or a B. Dalton, but as I was reading this passage of We Become What We Normalize, I was saying yes, because it was exactly my experience. The Walden Books in Peachtree Mall in Columbus, Georgia, Muskogee County, and I see this book with a funny cover called Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Kars. And so I want to ask you now in our last segment about who was James P. Kars for you, and why did he become such an important part of the final chapters of your book, We Become What We Normalize? This is a real gift of a question. Yeah, I'm so great. I had no idea who your third person was going to be. But James P. Cars was a scholar of religion and also a, an amazing writer, an amazing thinker, a cultural anthropologist, in my view, a mystic, I want to say. I do. I have known some people that I think of as mystics and Cars remotely I knew. I will say that I first found James Cars via footnote in a book by David Loy, um, a Zen master in Cincinnati the last time I checked, who came to my attention through Rich King, who was at Vanderbilt and who is um, in London now. Rich King is a, a scholar of Buddhism and a mentor of mine. But Finite and Infinite Games... I love the black cover. <laughs> that is the one one could have found at B. Dalton. Tiny little slim book of aphorisms that is also a theory of culture. And I believe, I can't recall which author it was. But anyway, there's a guy 
who said that there's a revolution on every page. And this is the case with finite and infinite games. In short, the whole of human culture within this book is divided into two activities, one of which is finite play and the other one is infinite play. And infinite play, well, I should say finite play, the finite player plays to win, plays to defeat, plays to resolve, plays to exhaust the meaning of a text. This is what it means. The infinite player plays to keep the play going, to find out what more meaning might be discovered through singing the song again or watching the film again. Or I even think of the end of Romeo and Juliet when one character says, have more talk of these sad things. There has been finite play in that play, but all the world's a stage and there is more play to be had by talking about what happened truly, righteously, playfully, if you will. Those involved in creative nonviolent action, I will lift up the name of James Lawson in this, strike me as infinite players because they keep it going, even when the aggressor exerts force to shut down the finite, the infinite player flips it, tries to keep it going. I have a beloved brother-in-law named Michael Mason, who was once asked, what'd you just say? To which he said, what'd you hear? (laughs) What'd you say? What'd you hear? That's a little bit like you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. That's that flipping of the script that can happen. And Kars does that. I should say, too, that Kars, I invited him to Belmont years ago, and he had to cancel because of a tragedy in the family. And then he himself passed maybe two years later. But I sent him all my books, and I will say for posterity, (laughs) yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is complete vanity. He said, I may not read all your books, but just by looking at them, I can tell that we're kindred spirits. Oh, wow. And for me... And we had phone conversations. I don't say that to say David Dark is the curator of the meeting of James Carson's work, but I was so, so grateful that he felt seen and heard by me because I do mean to carry forward his work, even when I'm not always quoting him. I believe his theory of culture, and of course, theory of culture is just thought about culture in the sense that I navigate my own conflicts and my own quandaries with this idea of how do I keep it in play, which doesn't mean that I'll sit down for coffee with just anybody (laughs) at this stage in my life. But if I have to refuse to sit down with them, I'm still going to want to hold the door open because people held the door open for me when I was enamored by Rush Limbaugh. So, and I'll say too, that I don't think Jesus of Nazareth is the only infinite player in human history, but Kars seemed to think that he was, if this is a bit of a paradox, that Jesus was a master infinite player and that, and we don't have time to get into it this much, but a study of the gospels, or at least Carse's read on the Gospels, is that Jesus at every turn, even down to Pontius Pilate, was trying 
to keep the door open to the fellow creature that was the aggressor toward him. Well, let me see if I can give some handholds to our listeners so we don't have to lay out the entire buffet, but we can point out a couple of good dishes on the table. So we mentioned earlier Hannah Arendt, and one of the things that Hannah Arendt put into play, she said most philosophers tend to think about the good death and mortality and living towards a good death. But she wanted to talk again, and I get this from a recent guest of mine, Jennifer Banks, she wanted to talk instead about natality about birth and the way in which every moment, because we are born into natality, every moment can be a moment where we could choose something new, something different, something surprising. When I hear you talking about holding the door open, I hear that same sort of invitation to, I'm going to leave this space open for you to surprise me. Thus far, you have given me indications to think that you are this and this, and we might not be friends, but you may yet surprise me. Now, when I say this sounds what Carson is getting at towards keeping the play going. Now, when I make these connections, does that feel right for you? And if so, I'd love to hear your thoughts. It really does. And you're connecting it beautifully because I think Hannah Arendt said she marked Jesus as whatever else you think of Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave us forgiveness as a political move, as a way of keeping things in motion. The way, and we can even say that soul is anima, is motion itself. So the heart in motion is the heart of stone made into a heart of flesh that can beat again. And Kars expressly says that to be trained is to be trained against surprise, whereas to be educated is to be trained for surprise. So that's the everyday do-over that I bank on with students, family, and friends. I try to make a point in class if I realize that I've said something that I wouldn't say now in light of what I just learned about a student's own background. I will, right there in front of the class, say, I apologize, I repent, I'm glad you didn't film me, because I would not say what I said five minutes ago. And to me, repentance is the mind turning around and round. I mean, it can be hard. It's very hard, but it's not a dreary thing. It's remaining in motion, remaining in play instead of getting stuck, instead of getting cornered and defensive and reactive. The call is to be responsive because though I have a reactive self that often takes the wheel, I have a deeper responsive self. And I think that responsive self is called to play. Karst says the genius in me calls out to the genius in you, and we can substitute that with the divine image in me, the conscience in me, the Buddha nature in me calls out to all of that in you. And I truly, even when I feel attacked by somebody, I try, I forget who said it, it might have been Loy, who said sometimes an enemy is Buddha enough. Like the person that you think of as the enemy holds the treasure that you seek if you can get them to talk. But yeah, so holding that door up, and often if somebody comes at me, I'll say, would you mind putting that accusation in the form of a question? And if they're up for it, we're off again. But it is hard to when people won't throw the ball back to get a dialogue going. I do think, who was it, the rabbi? Oh, I need to remember his name. I believe there's a rabbi who said the conversation is the antidote to violence. 
if you can get the conversation going, there can be healing. And that's the transformative justice that I'm trying to to point to in this book and in all my work. I love this so much, and I want to stick with this idea of surprise for a little while longer. So another guest of mine, uh, a wonderful author by the name of Maya Katrositz, who looks at New Testament literature and, and ancient literature like that, uh, at one point she was having a conversation with me about her writing process, and she said, if I'm writing well, then what I'm writing scares me just a little bit because it comes out unexpected. Mm. And so I want to ask you, this book, We Become What We Normalize, were there aspects of this book that surprised you because they were unexpected when they appeared on the page? This is a great question. I'm, I remember the rabbi's name. It's Jonathan Sachs for the listeners. Yes, it came out of surprise. It also came out of, there's parts of it that took me longer than anything else that I've ever written because I was addressing a LeBron James tweet at the thick of George Floyd summer. I was addressing the criminalizing of nonviolent protest in the state of Tennessee when our Governor Lee didn't want to have an audience with um, Black activists, Christian activists. It was essentially the criminalizing of prayer, at overnight prayer, and of course the Trump era, which was a big surprise. I, I, I did not see it coming. I'm referring to the election of Donald Trump. And in my teaching and in my relationship with others, I have been looking for words and looking for ways of responding creatively and compassionately to people whose decisions strike me as abusive and shocking. So it, there was a bit of a crucible, if you will, sleepless nights even, of I have to set this down, and I'm not going to be able to go to sleep until I write these words. And so over years, the words came, and even we become what we normalize. I, those words didn't come to me until I was in a corner on social media trying to respond um, constructively. And I realized I, I think I have a proverb for our time. I, I believe it's the case that we become what we normalize, that we become what we sit still for. We become what we give our energy to. And in that last one, there, there is a corrective there because I've realized that if I let strangers on the Internet take over my, my mental space, I'm, I'm in trouble. I got to cut off that tap every once in a while so that I'll have something constructive to say. And increasingly, and I pick this up from Henry Nowen, I think that Jesus sought solitude, got away from people, had to, in order to regather inspiration, wits, courage to interact with people again. So yes, this was hard. There were parts of it that were the hardest part, and there were parts of it that if I don't write it, I write to think, to know what I'm thinking. And I had to write it in order to get out of some rather dark corners. Well, and I want to now turn to your writing process, because as a longtime friend of yours and as a person who interacts with you often in social media space, I was delighted to see many of the thoughts that you have been working out in sort of real time in social media appearing in a more distilled form here in the book. And so I wanted to ask you about that process of moving things from the 
if you will, from the scroll to the page. What has yes. that been like for you? Yeah, so I am, if I have a screen in front of me and a keyboard, I am toggling in the sense that I am toggling. I haven't been doing it while we've been talking, but I could have, where I could be looking at Instagram or looking at an article or cutting and pasting material into a draft of an article that I'm working on. So often I would have a sentence like, to love a person is to love a process, which I voiced out loud outside a library to my wife, Sarah, a librarian. And I said, do you think that's the case? And she said, yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write that down. And then, and truly for years, I don't think it's the case as much now that Twitter is a website owned by Russian oligarchs and uh, the Saudi royal family and Elon Musk. But for the longest time, Twitter on my phone, and I don't have it on my phone, you may be surprised to know, but when I did have it on my phone, it was a kind of notepad like no other notepad. Because in addition to setting something down, I would tweet it and I would find out how it landed with people. And sometimes words that I thought were not all that thoughtful meant a whole lot to people via the tool called Twitter. And I would sometimes, America Magazine might say, do you want to write about that? And I would say yes. So what started out as a tweet would become a longer article. Or in some cases, I might get into some trouble over a tweet. And I would think, I need to turn this into an article so, so that it wasn't just a random thing. And so it's been an interesting five to six years of talking through all of that. I still believe, though I don't recommend Twitter to anyone, I still argue that Twitter, like Threads, like Blue Sky, is like paper, but just quicker. That you can get it out there. So media, there's electronic media, but media, which is postcards, books, film, we've always had media. So when somebody says that Twitter or Instagram is a cesspool, I want to say, well, it is just people. There's disinformation. There's horror. But it is, there are people who don't have a voice apart from this particular website. And I know that people have found people. I could name Jazz Robertson is the big one for me. She's become really good friends. She lives in Los Angeles. She's an artist. And there's lots of people that I've, I've met in person via that weird magic ring tool. But I, I am, I think, who knows, but I think I'm backing away from that particular tool and trying to make, do Substack, which will eventually become books, which... Yeah, I think I'm withdrawing from Twitter at least a little bit at the moment. But I have so much material there that I'm going to keep on searching for particular words and seeing if I've used that word in a sentence. And then it's just cut paste right into the manuscript. This is probably the book that has more stuff that originally appeared on Twitter than anything else. Well, I'm delighted to get a chance to have watched this move from that sort of nascent process to print. I just loved this book, and I know that my listeners will love the book. And every time I get a chance to talk to you, David Dark, it is just fantastic for my own thinking. I want to thank you especially for the time and labor and love 
which we mean in terms of responsibility and affection. Oh, yeah. The love that you took in writing this book, but thank also you. thank you for the time and care and responsibility and affection, the love that you have taken in this conversation. I know that my listeners will benefit from it. Thank you. You've been an energizing presence in my life since I've met you, and I'm just grateful um, to be in on what you're doing. We've been speaking today with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He's the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, and The Possibility of America, which we have discussed on this show before. He is a frequent contributor to many magazines, including Pitchfork, Paste, America Magazine, and The Christian Century. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, We Become What We Normalize, What We Owe Each Other in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.